You're listening to Simply Stogies, a podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back, relax, while James brings you along on his cigar journey. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, sit down with guests from across the industry, and we'll probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This episode, we are returning to the Cuban sub-series, and we are joined by co-host Nicholas Sears of LH Cigars, Master Blender. I know he loves that term oh so much. Uh, and Maybe if I stop commenting, you'll stop saying it, so I won't even say anything. Well, you just did, so I'm going to keep doing it. Well, but I'm, and I'm not going to comment again. I'm letting everybody know I'm not going to comment. That's it. All right. Well, then I'll try to remember not to say that next time. Uh, owner of LH Cigars, uh, Blender. Uh, and Cuban expert, uh, you've made a ton of trips to Cuba. We've covered that before. If you haven't listened to any of the other um, podcasts in the subseries, go check it out. But we have a ton to cover this week, don't we, Nick? Sure do. Lots on the plate. So we'll just get right into it. But before we do, I want to invite you to go to OxfordCigarCompany.com. Use coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES. That will get you 15% off. Yes, 15% off anything you put in your cart. Doesn't matter what it is. OxfordCigarCompany.com. Use coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES. You can even pick up some LH cigars while you're there. Give those a try. If you haven't tried LH cigars, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, Check it out. OxfordCigarCompany.com. Coupon code SIMPLYSTOGIES. And I'm done shilling. That's it. That's all the shilling I've got this That's week. That's it? Oh, uh, okay. Nick, let's let's go right into the news. And the big one uh, about Cuba was mm. I was I was uh, awakened from my slumber uh, a couple of weeks ago from our mutual friend, Randy. And he had sent me a text mm. message saying, hey, a hotel in Cuba blew up. And I'm like, wait, what? Um, what was the deal with that? What Do you know what happened? Do you have any... Um, news on what that was like what uh give us the lowdown yeah i actually do have news uh i was always looking for confirmation online from a lot of the news sources but i haven't really gotten it from third-party sources but i have my sources in cuba now what happened there for people that are unaware one of the most uh high-end boutique hotels known as the saratoga um actually had an explosion that just devastated the downtown, man. And this thing was supposed to reopen in Havana just a couple of days after um, the explosion took place. And um, it was closed for the last two years, as are a lot of the hotels there. I mentioned in there, my return to Cuba segment thing. We did a couple, what was it last month? Or, yes. No, well, we did it a few, few weeks ago. A few weeks but ago. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of the hotels have been closed. This was one of them. Everybody's gearing up, trying to reopen. And this was one of them. And they had uh, like 51 people working there the day that they were still cleaning up. And 23 of those original people were among the confirmed dead. Wow. These are executives, maids, cooks, reception workers. There was even a Spanish tourist there that uh, all went among the people that uh, unfortunately killed in that uh, horrific accident. I think the official count is 43 or 45. Um, the military-owned Gaviota, uh, remember we talked about there's certain properties that Americans, when they were allowed to travel there individually, were able to go to certain hotels. Well, that wasn't one of them. 
and you know, the reality is as beautiful as that hotel is, it's like four fifty to six fifty a night. So it's a little pricey, but it was on the can't go there list for Americans. But anyway, it was a very, very beautiful uh, hotel. And what I heard, I mean, if you saw the videos or the pictures, um, the whole side of the hotel just was gone. I mean, you could look right in. In fact, the people that were recording on the streets with their iPhones and such, you could see people still walking around inside. Um, the wall was just gone. Like, uh, and apparently a bunch of buildings in the vicinity were also demolished. A lot of people had to be, um, re, you know, removed. And um, it looked like it was an explosion from the inside and some kind of gas leak of sorts. Now, what my sources have told me was that it was actually a propane gas truck that had a small fender bender out on the street and um, they were trying to, but it was not movable and they tried to put it on a flatbed or a tow truck and they were using literally a strap and it blew up and that's what caused the explosion. So, uh, you know, I can't really get hundred percent confirmation, but it was definitely an explosion. And I'm pretty sure that that is the real deal of what happened. So maybe in the long run uh, down the road, they will, tell what really happened uh, or when they f- officially know. So I think they really know, but they, I guess they, they're not saying at this point, or maybe they have, I haven't read every news uh, story that's been out there. I did of course, look at the uh, original, um, the initial reports that reported, but that's you know what, what happened. That, that building, it looked like what it reminded me of when I saw it, it reminded me of uh, the FBI building, Oklahoma city bombing. Where you mm. could just literally like the, look like the whole outside of the building had just been sheared off, and you could see the uh, different floors and whatnot. That, that's just what it reminded me of. I mean, it was obviously a, a fairly large blast to be able to do that. And I don't, I don't know. You, you know, you're saying four to five hundred dollars a night to to spend the night at that hotel. Was it yeah. was it a very yeah. nice hotel? It was. Yeah, it was beautiful. If you look wow. at Cigar Aficionado. Uh, magazine of about a couple years ago they did one of the cover they did one of the iconic beautiful covers of their one of their cuba series occasionally they'll do a whole magazine uh issue where it's devoted to kind of like cuban cigars and cuban news and this was one of them and the cover was very beautiful and what it was was the the backdrop or the 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 wall behind this beautiful bar that was up on the mezzanine floor the um the rooftop hotel Oh my God, it was so beautiful. The pool out there and the many a um, uh, hosted dinners were up on the hotel, uh, on the hotel roof uh, by Habanos and the Partagas Festival. Um, beautiful, beautiful hotel. Um, mm. They totally renovated. I mean, it's an old iconic hotel. I, I don't know if it's from, it's definitely 1800s. It might be older, but um, they renovated when I saw it. And now I guess they went back and they did another renovation for the last two years. Uh, that's what they say anyway. But, you know, they say they're renovating all these other hotels. I don't see any movement. But then again, you can't go in. I just think they're just closed and it would be a good time to renovate because there's you know, no tourists there. But um, well, I think that's about ready to change. Speaking of tourists in, in Cuba, uh, because the Biden administration reversed some Trump era policies concerning Cuba this week as well, didn't they? 
Absolutely. I mean, this was long uh, awaited and uh, wanted by many, uh, by others, not so much. You know, the uh, Cuban-American contingency and some of the politicians, um, some senators even from my current home state of New Jersey are very disappointed with the moves. But basically what happened is the U.S. was getting a little fed up with Cuba saying, man, we are getting people in droves. And we talked about how there's been more of an exodus from Cuba than there has been since, heck, you know, since the Mariel Boatlift. Their people are just coming in here like crazy. And I think the U.S. government said something to Cuba like, hey, can we try to do something here? And they were like, well, it's really your fault, which is what you expect them to say. Right. But. The reality is, in this case, a lot of it is our fault. When we allow people to come in illegally, um, they're going to do it. And Cuban government said, well, why don't you go back to doing things out of the legal way where you actually issue visas and people could come there? Now they come, they risk their lives either to go through the Florida Straits and uh, that way, or they risk their lives going through the Nicaragua and then using mules or buses or transports to go through our southern border uh, through Mexico. The difference is since Obama made the change where the old wet foot, dry foot uh, policy was in place, that's gone. But yet you can still kind of say, hey, we're Cuban, political refugee, this, that. And for some reason, Cubans still um, get a little bit of a preferential treatment than most of the other immigrants that come illegally from our borders or however. So that was the main thing that caused the two countries to actually meet. And it was probably a month ago where um, the Cuban, I think it was the uh, deputy you know, foreign minister or some people from Cuba came, met in Washington and tried to hash it out. Um, some of the good things that came out of that is that now the U.S. Embassy in Havana is actually getting restaffed, where prior to that, if you wanted a visa as a Cuban um, to come to the United States, you had to go to Guatemala. Mm-hmm. So Cubans Cubans can't go anywhere. I mean, first, they don't have the, the, the funds to do that. And second of all, they're not going to go there to get a visa so they can go see their family. So they stopped that. I mean, there was a skeleton crew. There was, you know, three to five people working at the embassy for the last few years. But um, so they, that was a really big thing. So, um, you know, they want to help. They realize now the U.S. government, or at least the, the Biden administration, is saying that, you know, they see the unprecedented humanitarian risks that the State Department said in the release. And their policy, and I quote, will continue to focus on empowering the Cuban people to help them create a future free from repression and economic suffering. So, that's the reason that we are starting to lower down some of the things that were taken away and then uh, the Trump administration put put back on. One of the things was the reversing on the ban of the U.S. airline flights to the regional airports. The, the only uh, air, airport that we were allowed to fly in for well, the last couple of years has been Havana. So, and the only reason for those regional airports to even exist for flights to go in is for Cuban-Americans to go visit their, um, you know, their, their local provinces and, and areas. I mean, as we think of Cuba as a small island, it's pretty long. I mean, I think it's as long as traveling from like New York to, to Miami, but it's, you know, horizontal and it's uh, very uh, mountainous. So it's a very long island. It's a big island. It's narrow. But, you know, when you land in Havana, you're going to spend another day or two 
driving, you know, to the other end of the, uh, the island, if you're going to go down to Guantanamo. Right. So it's a long island. So they added that. Um, but the main thing is that they announced that they would authorize more scheduled uh, flights and charter flights beyond Havana. But the best thing about it is now they've eased it and they said they're going to make it a little bit easier for Americans to travel to Cuba again. So the group people to people trips are going to be reinstated. Now, there were other reasons that were still in place of the original categories that allowed for travel to Cuba, but the people to people was removed. Uh, educational travel was removed. Um, but now group people to people trips will be reinstated along with the educational and the professional and all the other stuff that's already been in place. There's again now, I think so now there's back to 11, there was 12 categories. So there's 10 or 12 categories that are there. But the idea was um, Trump removed those to try to curtail the the number of U.S. citizens that were traveling to the island because, you know, we started getting there in, in, in flocks. Um, but these new policies don't seem to go as far as the Obama policies did. So before there was uh, the allowance of individual people to people travel, which a lot of people took advantage of. You could go uh, book a flight. There was, you know, Spirit was flying out of Fort Lauderdale. You could fly to Cuba for 150 bucks. And a lot of people did. And a lot of people were surprised. Uh, a lot of people had no knowledge of a lot of things like, oh, by the way, you have to have cash. There's no credit cards or debit cards. So imagine, you know, landing in <laughs> Cuba. And I know people that have done this and I've helped Americans. They land there. I had a, a, a funny story, you know. I met these two guys at the airport and they're like, yeah, man, we're so, we want to come to Cuba, this and that. Oh, great. So where are you guys staying? Oh, you know, man, we're just going to go online and just find an Airbnb. I go, oh, you're going to go online. Okay. That's great. And I'm like asking them all these questions. They had no clue. And I'm like, let me ask you a question. I just have a funny feeling. He's like, what? How much cash you bring? Oh, dude, you know, us younger guys, we, you know, we don't bring cash. We got our credit cards. I go, yeah. oh, really? I said, well, that's not going to really serve you very well here. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, credit cards don't work here. What? I mean, literally these guys had less than 50 bucks between the two of them. So I don't know what they would have done if they hadn't met me there. I, I took care of them and uh, they were grateful. I, they were very appreciative and I was glad to help out and I got them hooked up with a place and a car and, and some cash. But um, yeah, so you got to kind of know something before you go. So what's the difference then between group people to people trips and, and people to people travel like what well, I, I i'm sure i could google it but like you're the expert would tell me what the difference is well just as the wording says one is for groups and one is individual so the key thing is that there is no such thing as tourism or people traveling you have to be there under one of the categories that are allowed with a group travel there's somebody responsible for the individuals where before the individual was responsible the key thing and it's still the the um the verbiage in what it says is that you must be there on a full-time program in um in while you're there full-time program of whatever your license or your permission is there to be there. So if it's the uh, people to people category that was removed, the idea was you were supposed to go and meet with the people and interact and promote democracy. And uh, or if you're going there for music um, or journalism, you had to have a full time program, which means basically eight hours a day has to be devoted to the reason you are there. 
After that, you're allowed obviously some free time, but it's not go sip mojitos uh, on the beach. That's what they're trying to avoid. So with the group travel, it puts somebody like myself when I was when I was doing it prior to the pandemic, um, I'm responsible for keeping the records, for keeping in up to five years or seven years, the State Department can say, hey, I want to see what this program was. I have to give them the itinerary of what people did, where we stayed. And uh, so there is some bookkeeping. So they're not leaving it up to the individuals to provide this. So now they have some form of um, accountability, if nothing else. So it's going to allow for group travel, but not individuals to do the same thing. So, so if they ever open it back up to people to people travel like they did under the Obama era, do, do the people, if you go there as an individual, is it the same thing? You have to keep a, a, an itinerary for eight hours or is it, is it like you have a, to have a full time program itinerary that you have to provide everybody that went Here's probably why they got rid of it. Um, everybody was going and nobody really knew the laws and, and realized it. And it, the education and was not there. Like you could just literally go online, go to spirit, go to JetBlue, book a flight and Hey, I'm going to Cuba. So, um, in fairness to the Cuban Americans that do not want any Americans going there under a Castro regime of any sort, um, a lot of people didn't know the difference. They thought, hey, we're just going there. We're going to like, you know, hit the bars. We're going to go to the beach. And, and, you know, the onus is on the individual that's going there. So they would still be liable for um, being fined and violating, you know, our State Department's rule, the OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control that covers this. But a lot of people did just that. So I guess they said, you know what? We're going to have to make somebody be a responsible babysitter for this. So that's what the group travel is about. So you go there with a group and somebody is responsible for where you go, where you stay, and the fact that you're having eight hours of your program of what the category is that you're going. And it was pretty liberal. I mean, they had artistic, uh, all kinds, you know, they had musical and um, uh, different programs, cultural um, so there are a lot of reasons to go there, but it has to be like if you're going there for theater, for instance, because they do a lot of theater, you have to go there and meet with the people, the instructors, go to the plays. I mean, you have to have a full time program. That's the key. So my full time program, guess what it's about? It's about cigars. And, <laughs> I would, and that's, would never guess. But my full time program isn't just eight hours. Mine is, you know, every waking minute from the moment you wake up. And, you know, we we do the thing where we go to not only the shops, but the factories. We meet with the people. We go to the fields. We go to the, you know, to the um, to the farms, the the processing. It's pretty cool when you go there, even if you've gone to um, a tour in Nicaragua or a Dominican, you see the way things are done in the Cuba way. And it's totally interesting. And the best part about Cuba for me is it's the backdrop is this country that has stood still in time. It's like going back in time and you're in the fifties. Um, you'd be surprised the amount of classic American cars, you know, pre 1960 that are still there and they're running. I mean, they may have Russian engines uh, and uh, they call those cars, you know, Frankensteins, because right. even though they they literally are just put together the ingenuity of the Cuban people to make these things uh, run after 50, 60 years um, is just amazing. The architecture there, you know, the old buildings, the Art Deco, um, there's just so many things for anybody, not just cigar lovers, but stuff that what I like about Cuba the most is it's like. You know, you go to any other country, 
you know, obviously I spent a lot of time in Costa Rica. My negative points about Costa Rica is that it's become so Americanized. All the franchisees, you can go to uh, everything from a Burger King to a you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, TGIF Fridays. Heck, there's even Hooters. There's everything there. Um, and it's great. You know, oh, you feel like you're back at home. What's the point yeah, of going but, then? But exactly. Why, <laughs> if you are back at home, why are you leaving? You know, but a lot of Americans love feeling comfortable. I read a statistic once that most Americans tend to not travel beyond a 25-mile radius of where they were born. And it just blew me away because I just... Before I ever started traveling to Cuba, I was always into traveling and I love meeting people of different cultures. And to me, that's better education than you could ever get from a book. And uh, I've been all over the world and I enjoy it. And I plan on doing more and more of it. And I was fortunate enough to be able to incorporate my travels with my work. And um, and obviously my passion of cigars as my uh, vocation as well. So it kind of worked out for me or I made it work out. And we've talked anyway. about and we've talked about uh, this next thing quite a bit uh, on this sub series, uh, this Cuban sub series that you and I have been doing. But the the um, Biden administration plans to um, go back to unlimited remittances because uh, right now Trump capped it at a thousand. He did a bunch of other stuff, and you know, no, shut no. The- Trump removed it. Yeah, like he, he well, first he, he first he had it capped. And then there was no remittances. And one of those things we talked about, the perfect trifecta of why things are so depressed and really hit hard economically. The main reason is because there was no remittances. They stopped Western Union from being able to operate there. And that was the main source and and way of people getting their money from their families. So, you know. That was a big thing. You're absolutely right. Now the limit to, um, you know, the Trump had set in place of a thousand per quarter and then when then to zero uh, made it really difficult. So, yeah. So they removed that. And the other thing that the only thing that kind of has me scratching my head about and I don't understand this one. The other big thing that the um, the Biden administration has done is they're going to have an, a thing about informal investment for the expansion of small businesses um, in Cuba. And they're going to allow for that. Wait, and I'm, wait what? <laughs> yeah. Isn't everything owned by the government? Well, yes and no. Um, what's happened in the last, I'd say, seven, eight years is the Cuban government is allowed because of the lack of funds and being able to pay everybody you know, because if communist or, or whatever they, they say, socialist, you know, everybody works for the government, the government pays. Well, the government didn't have enough money to, to give out their stipends. They've reduced everything from the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, I don't, I forgot what they call, where, you know, where they get their eggs and their sugar and all that stuff. Um, and, and the salaries, I mean, they're down to nothing anyway. People can't live on that. So they were starting to allow officially for some, you know, capitalism is a bad word over there, but they were allowing the people to start their own businesses. They, of course, allow for taxi drivers, um, you know, people to ride to drive their cars with a license and pick up some. There's two types of licenses. There's one just for Cubans and one they were allowed to pick up tourism. There were certain other requirements like, uh, of course, the renting of their houses 
in these paladars, which is basically a restaurant in your house with limited seats. They had like, you know, they're very strict. Let's say they would only allow for nine seats per restaurant, but allow the Cuban people to kind of make some, some money and take advantage of some of the tourist money that was in the country. So these are the businesses that were there. So they own those businesses, but they're controlled and they have to kick some back, obviously, in the form of some taxation and fees to the government. So um, that was a good thing for the Cuban people because they were able to be more in control of what they earned. Um, so you have a lot of Cuban Americans that have family in in Cuba. I would say mostly everyone. Right. So I think unofficially, um, people were doing it anyway. So they were allowing, you know, people were sending money back and allowing their relatives to open up these businesses, you know, the restaurants and and the being able to buy cars there. But really, this is the first time in 60 years that the U.S. government has actually authorized the United States equity investment and financing for a private company to be located in Cuba. That's a pretty big deal. So um, we'll see how that really now the official statement, even though they announced this a few days ago. Um, I usually get hit and anybody that can follow it, the uh, OFAC will send me an email when they actually post all the actual rules that I can read from their website. And, you know, that's basically the new laws. And uh, no matter what you hear and what they say, until it's posted on the uh, Office of Foreign Asset Control under the State Department's website, then you'll know that it'll be in black and white what's real and what's not real. So right now, I would say this is beyond speculation. We know this is happening. There are statements that are coming from Washington. But when it's in black and white, you'll have something tangible to uh, go back to. Now, all of these all of these moves that the Biden administration is doing, uh, do you believe that this will help the situation in Cuba? Because like you said, when you first like when you got back, you're like, it's a shit show down there. Will this yeah. help ease some of that and get things back to some sense of what it was before, maybe not all the way, but will it help? Number one, number two, will this stem the tide of people fleeing Cuba? Cause you said that they were leaving in droves and anybody who could had, and anybody who, who might be able to has a plan to get out. Uh, and, and three, is this going to help you maybe start doing tours again at some point in the near future? Oh, absolutely. To all those points. I mean, you're absolutely right. People that can were leaving and, and it's, you know, it's the lesser of the two evils. Like, you know, I don't want to say something horrific, you know, people that are in a burning, a burning uh, building, they'll jump to their death because they don't want to be burned alive. Yeah. You know, like if you stay there, you're going to be burned alive. If you jump, you might not make it, but it's better than getting burned alive, you know? So you know, people are leaving and the, you know, the unknown is, is huge. Um, especially when they take to these little, uh, makeshift little, uh, crafts that sink or, you know, uh, many people have lost their lives, you know, trying to make it that 90 mile cross, um, across the Florida Straits. Um, it's, it's dangerous, but people are at their wits end. It's either starve or do something, you know, you got to get off the Island. So yeah, this is a huge, huge, um, help to the government because before the main reason is their relatives in uh, the U S were not able to send them money along the way. And even for some, it's still very expensive to go to Cuba. Um, Cuba has a lot of fees for Cuban Americans. It's, you know, they have to keep their Cuban 
Amer- their Cuban um, passport and they have to pay for that. For me, it would be great because, you know, buying a visa every time for a hundred bucks is a lot more expensive than, you know, getting, getting a, <laughs> you know, a, a renewed um, Cuban passport, but that's right. another story. Um, there's no such thing as non-born Cubans having a passport there. It's one of the few countries that uh, you cannot naturalize a um, little tidbit of information hmm. or trivia. If you say the only person that I know of that was not born on the Island of Cuba, that has a Cuban passport was Che Guevara. Now, not only was he a Cuban citizen, but he was, you know, secretary yeah. of state. Right. So he was kind of a big shot, but other than that, doesn't matter. You're not born there. You're not Cuban. Uh, you don't get that Cuban passport. So, and you have that Cuban passport, then you can buy property. You can do a lot of stuff. So now with these new changes, people will be able to get money on the island. So, and then the fact that this is an opening for tourism again. So more groups will venture to go there because they will be allowed to legally and um, which will bring more U.S. dollars and you know, so yeah, this is a very good thing. And for people that want to go to Cuba, this is great. For me, the only sad part um, that they didn't change, they didn't reverse, is the fact that it is still illegal for Americans to bring back Cuban cigars, rum, or yeah. any other goods for that matter. I mean, I think technically allowed to bring back, you know, recorded material, artwork, you know, and books. Uh, which was how it was prior to Obama's changes. So, yeah, man, no Cuban cigars. But while you're there, you can enjoy a lot of them while you're there. So. Right. From from sunup to sundown. and uh, That's me. Yeah, right. I, like you, know. you were saying, because you and I, we met for the first time uh, this last weekend in Ashland, Kentucky for the Mild Kentucky Herf. It was a great time. Look for that podcast great time. coming out. Uh, I talked to Nick. I talked to Luciano Morales. I talked to Oscar Valadares. Um, I talked to Andy Yaffe from McAuliffe, um, I, and I talked to uh, Greg Free from uh, Fuerte y Libre. Uh, just some really great guys, and I have obviously have Dwight Atkins on, the the man behind Fat Ash Cigar Lounge in uh, Ashley, Kentucky, and behind the uh, My Old Kentucky Herf. It's the second annual. It was a lot of fun. You know, obviously, we've known of each other now for probably almost a year. Yeah. Uh, but we met face-to-face for the first time in Ashland, Kentucky. Yeah, no, and it was a, it was a good time. So look for for that podcast uh, coming out soon. Uh, I I want to touch real quickly before we get into the innovators of of Cuban cigars. And I know we we there's a lot of news uh, for this episode. Um, some of this will be old news for some of you, depending on when you listen to the podcast. Some of this will be new news. Uh, but uh, Habanos SA is raising the prices of cigars yet again. Yeah. I mean, they've been continually raising them over the years. Uh, generally, it was a small increase, you know, five, ten percent every year. Um, and they keep, you know, trying to produce more cigars, and you know, they're really not because of uh, many reasons. So now they have announced, at least on the Cohiba brand and Trinidad, that prices could for some triple, and that's a pretty big deal. I mean, tripling your prices. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to people in Habanos and they've asked me my opinion and I've given it to them and they could not reply with their personal views because <laughs> right. I have a feeling that uh, they probably agreed with what I was saying, but couldn't 
you know, uh, confirm or deny what I was saying to be the reason for this. Um, a lot of things like, you know, Partagas is going to end up costing, you know, 15 to 20% more. The rest of the portfolio probably be, you know, between five and 10%. You know, the bigger, the top seven brands, the Monte Cristo, Hoy de Monterey, uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, HUP, and those are the, the you know, the, the well-known, what they call the international brands. They're going to have a, a jump. But like I said, Cohiba and Trinidad, they're going to go through the roof. Um, you know, they can't make more cigars, so they're raising the prices. That's what they're saying, right? They've, uh, they claim they have 12% more of production. And they, and every year at the, uh, business meeting that they, they hold, you know, they show increases across the board with every territory and area. So, you ask yourself, why did they do this? Well, I have my theories and I will share them if anybody cares to listen. I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you probably, probably want to care. Yeah. You probably care to listen, whether you agree with me or not. It makes no difference to me. But here is why I believe this is 100% the reason why Cohiba prices and Trinidad prices have been set. Well, here, here's what the new law, the basically that these prices have been adjusted based on the Hong Kong price levels for all markets worldwide. So this new price structure is going to be in effect as of, I think it was May 1st, you know, consumer prices for all these cigars where they used to raise 10, 20% every year. Uh, now they're going to go to the Hong Kong prices. They still claim that Spain is the biggest market of Cuban cigars consumers. Um, I think that, what happens to a lot of these territories and distributors is they move them to the areas where they can get more money anyway, because there's always a shortage. So, but it was strictly forbidden by Habanos. If you are a distributor in first, let's say you're uh, in um, Switzerland, you know, or uh, Germany, the same distributor, which is Fifth Avenue, they could not legally sell their cigar stock or allotment to let's say England, which is, uh, you know, another distributor, you know, Hunter and Franco. Um, so you're not allowed to transship to one country or another, but every distributor uh, was allowed to ship. It was like fair game to the US. They wanted the cigars to go to the US. And unfortunately, because Americans generally have the, the means or are willing to pay for this forbidden fruit, uh, I would venture to say that a lot of Cuban cigars ended up being in the U.S. Uh, for many years, obviously, illegally, and then of recent years, legally. Now, they weren't allowed to be shipped in, but you could, prior to the, the Trump changes, if you happen to go to, I was going to say Mexico, but there's a 99% chance you're not those getting are, real Cubans yeah, there. Those are fake. <laughs> well, there, there is, there is um, some Casa de Habanases there that are owned by a good friend of mine. And in those shops, you're pretty pretty sure you're getting the real stuff, but outside of that, no way, but certain countries, you have a better shot at it being real. And, and if you obviously go to a, an authorized uh, Casa de Habanos or Habano specialist in these countries and some of the duty-free shops, you're pretty much assured to get a real, you know, uh, Habanos product. But the point is everything used to go to the U S but as we know, if people that follow the, the Cuban story, um, there was a change in ownership not too long ago. So Imperial um, Tobacco, which is a British company, purchased Altitis, which is a Spanish company. So they've owned them for a number of years. And for whatever 
reasons being they decided, you know what, we don't want to be in the premium cigar business. We'll stick to our cigar, uh, to our cigarettes and things like that. And so they spun it back off. So it was up for sale for a while. There was rumors, who's going to buy it. It was a big number. It was uh, over a billion dollars, 1.1 to 1.5. Um, and nobody officially confirmed who the buyers are. We do know that they are of Asian um, origins. Now, we, they could be the companies of Asian origins. We don't know who the actual owners are. They wanted to keep their identity a secret. And I can tell you that even the people that work at Habanos, at the lower levels anyway, I don't know if the, if the presidents and vice presidents know. If they do, they're not saying. I can tell you that outside is USA has no idea other than they, they have no clue who the owners are. And <laughs> at least for the time being, they're not making any changes in at all. The first change that I see is this one with the price increase, even though they won't say this is the reason here's the way I see it. If they represent the Asian markets and they really want the amount of cigars to go to Asia, you can't go in when you're technically now you're 50% partner, right? You own, half of Habanos because you own the Altitis part. The other half is owned by the Cuban government or Tabacuba. And you sit down with your partner and you go, look, I want to all these cigars to go to Asia now. And of course, that would be a silly thing to do. Um, and they're not going to ch- do that. So how do they do that? They said, look, we have our distributors and we have to continue to support them. And they've been our good you know, partners for all these years. So we will now put this price increase in where it'll be at the, uh, you know, the Asian level and the Hong Kong level, and we'll make that price cross the board everywhere. So what's going to happen is if you are in a uh, not so high income country in Europe or somewhere else, you're not going to all of a sudden walk in and now you're expected to pay three times the, the amount that you would pay for that cigar. You're going to say, no way, or I can't afford it. Um, so what happens? The distributor is going to say, oh, my God, I can't sell this product. Don't worry, Mr. Distributor, you're guaranteed to sell. You can sell it to Asia and then they will sell it to Asia. Asia will get their cigars and they'll make their money. Everybody will be happy. Right. They won't confirm this, but I guarantee you that's that's what's happening, because if you're a distributor and they just all of a sudden raised now. The retail price is going. I guarantee you the wholesale price is going up because that's what. Uh, makes it uh, beneficial for the uh, Cuba side because now that'll bring more income on that side. But what I've said to them, and they asked my feelings about it, in the long run, this will be a very terrible thing. I mean, you want to make yourself a luxury brand, great. You want to make it based on price like Hermes and and some of these brands that like, I mean, is there any reason in the world why $20,000 pocketbooks exist or $50,000 pocketbooks? <laughs> right. For that matter, even $2,000 sneakers, yeah. you know, $4,000 sneakers. Is the material any different? Is there any real reason why that is worth that? No. It's just people are willing to pay to have a specific, it's all branding and marketing. Right. Um, but- and, I, and that- yeah. No, I, I was just I wanted to interject here just real quick because that we're, we're, what we're talking about here is we're talking about the primary market prices. We're talking about what Habanos SA is selling them for. Right. And so mm. as, as Americans, that's not the price we're going to see. 
period. Unless you're traveling overseas and you're in London or you're in uh, Mexico at a Habanos SA, one of these uh, um, Casa del Habanos shops that you're talking about, unless you're in one of those shops overseas, you're not going to see these prices. The prices that we will see as Americans, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but almost all of the online retailers that Americans typically get their Cubans from, and yes, I know it's illegal. It's kind of a gray market thing. Like you can't bring it in. Uh, if it gets through, it gets through. If it doesn't, like whatever. Uh, but all these online retailers, they get their cigars typically, not in all cases, but in most, from the secondary market. So you are going to be paying secondary market prices for these cigars, which are typically higher uh, than what the primary market is. Am I, am I wrong here, Nick? Well, a lot of these online guys, here's what really happens too. And I don't believe that they should do this, but they do. Cause I, you know, as you know, I was involved with uh, a business in the set in the middle East and um, we were buying, you know, the company was buying from these distributors. So here's the way some of these distributors work. They want to get the most dollar they can. So why would they sell it to a guy wholesale when they can sell it retail level through a so-called uh, third party company, which may or may not be owned by that distributor and sell it directly to the US market or whoever they want to, that wants to buy it online and pay retail prices. Right. So a lot of that was happening. I'm again, just my speculation, but I would bet my last <laughs> dollar that that was happening, but it was discounted. It's not full, full price. So a lot of people were buying it at lower prices than, you know, potentially you could get at a shop because their normal retail price was their wholesale price. So, okay, maybe they're not selling it for hundred percent, but again, the bottom line is it's all about supply and demand. And that's the case now for people that want Cuban cigars that readily buy Cuban cigars, the ones they want are not available. You go to all these websites, the legitimate ones, the ones that are known to be authentic sellers of cigars from Cuba. Um, there's nothing in stock, limited edition stuff, very little. So what, what does that do? It just raises the price. So right now uh, they're, they're so, so jacked. I can tell you that a box of Bejique's, uh, which is a 10 count, of a Cohiba newer brand that's considered, you know, the uh, the creme de la creme of cigars and also the most sought out. Uh, those are going for about twenty five hundred dollars now. Where, uh, where before there was like literally eleven hundred, twelve hundred bucks. It's almost double the price. Right. And be, I mean, I remember when they came out, they were like two hundred and eighty dollars. The, for a box of 10, you know, two hundred and sixty dollars official first price. I mean, it started going <laughs> you know, up fast, real fast, but now $2,500, that's about the going run, you know, the, the market price for those when you can find them. And again, there's just a limited amount. They don't have many. And so again, supply and demand, the whole thing, in my opinion, um, is going to be the only good thing that's going to come out of this. It won't be for Habanos or Cuba. The good thing that's going to come out of this is that all these other countries that were resistant uh, to trying what we call New World cigars, which is cigars not made in Cuba, people were like, no, no, we just want Cubans. And, you know, now what happened back in 2016 is the the increase of non-Cuban cigars being distributed outside of the U.S. went 
I mean, you know, crazy. I mean, percentage wise before that, it was hard to sell anything. Now everybody's open to it. And initially it happened in 2016 because their mentality was, you know what? Obama just uh, opened up Cuba for the U.S. That means Cuban cigars are going to be sold in the U.S. and we're not going to get anything. So we better learn about non-Cuban cigars if we want to smoke anything. So, um, the, of course, that wasn't true because you still, you know, but you ask any retailer, any any cigar retailer out there. And during that time when these announcements were being made, you know, they must have fell, uh, fielded 100 calls a week about, hey, can I buy a Cuban cigar now? No, you can't buy a Cuban cigar. No, <laughs> cigars. Oh. but the reality is most people thought you could. Yeah. So uh, the bottom line is now people are going to want to smoke. They're not going to spend three times. They're going to, well, you know, we can buy something a little less. Maybe it's not going to be as good as what we like uh, or what we're used to, I should say. Uh, but then they'll realize, oh, wait a minute, this is really good. Or this is, you know, so I think it's going to be an eye opener. And in the long run, it's going to reduce the percentage of market share that uh, Habanos has worldwide. Oh, I agree. So, I think this is going to force people to to try other cigars, the new world cigars, if you will. And I think that's going to open up a lot of avenues uh, for some of these uh, cigar makers. But there was some news today, Nick, uh, that, that came out that uh, the Scandinavian Tobacco Group, their sales dipped in the first quarter of this year, which for those of you who've been keeping track, everybody for the last couple of years during the pandemic has just had record growth, record sales. We've imported more cigars into the United States than ever before. And even Habanos SA uh, uh, posted a record $568 million in sales last year, which was up 15% uh, from 2020. So this boom that we've all in the industry worldwide have been enjoying, we might be coming to the end of that. I mean, probably not. It won't be a drastic reduction, but if STG is saying, hey, first quarter, our sales are down from what they have been the last couple of years. I, I think that's going to make some people pay attention and maybe Habanos as well. Do you do they look at this stuff or do they just say, no, we're we're Cuban cigars and we're going to do what we're going to do? No, they say we're Cuban cigars. We sell out of everything we have every year. So it doesn't really apply to us at some point in May. But right now, you know, when you know, no matter how much you sell or how much you can make, you will sell. It puts you in a good place. And then you're always trying to look to how can you get more? How can you make more? And that's another story for another uh, podcast. <laughs> but, you know, no, they're not. They don't care. They, they're like, ah. You know, they're down. We were constantly up. Um, so the dip is no no doubt because the pandemic is over. Um, people for here in the U.S. and overseas, people were stuck at home. So people yeah. were smoking more cigars. This has been the resurgence of cigar smoking in the U.S. I mean, we talk about, you know, the um, the 90s and the first cigar boom that immediately had a big dip right after it because everybody started smoking cigars because they thought it was cool, chic. Cigar aficionado told you it was there. It was aligned with, um, you know, 
uh, luxury vehicles and Rolex watches and big mansions. And, you know, maybe you can't drive a Ferrari or own a Ferrari and, and live in a $20 million mansion. But you know what? You can buy the same cigar that those people that do live in those houses and drive those cars smoke. So it was your way of, you know, so that's why cigars kind of equated with, um, you know, success. And, um, uh, and it still is, you know. But my contention is, yes, those points are there. But for me, tobacco is all about the, the getting those people that live in those $20 million houses that can sit and have a cigar with a guy that uh, has an apartment at an entry level, and they yet they can still enjoy the same cigar. So, yes, STG is dipping, and my feelings because of that is the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I, and I don't know. In the long run, I, I doubt that this is I, I think it's going to take a while for it to to come back to normalcy. Right. Like we still may see a bump from what it was pre pandemic because people, you know, hey, I'm smoking more cigars. I'm going to continue to smoke this amount. Um, but, you know, I think for the most part, uh, you know, probably by the end of the year, maybe end of next year, we'll probably be back to uh, pre pandemic numbers or close to it. That's just my my feeling as far as the Cuban cigars go, though, I, I feel like and this is just my personal opinion, Nick, and mm. I know, you know, in the United States, it's a lot different than it is everywhere else. But this is going to price a lot of people out of Cuban cigars. And I know guys in the hobby and the lifestyle in the culture who pride themselves that I only smoke Cuban cigars and now they're going, I can't like, no, <laughs> I can't afford this anymore. It's getting ridiculous, and I, I, I feel like in some, but it's like you said, it's supply and demand, and they can certainly sell pretty probably their entire stock to the Asian market and be fine. Right. They, and right they, now they're not because they want to at least superficially look like they're taking care of everybody else, specifically the Spanish market that consumes the, the majority of it. And then they divvy it up the way that they say they're divvying it up. Uh, the highest percentage, of course, going, they say, to their large distributors. You know, you're talking about Phoenicia, which covers the Middle East and Africa, Pacific, which is the Asia market, Fifth Avenue, I mentioned, that's, uh, you know, Switzerland and Germany, um, Coprova, that's France. Hunter Frankow, which is, um, you know, uh, England. So, yeah, they're all going to go there. But the, the 35% is going to be distributed among their smaller retailers, they, they claim. So they're going to try to divvy the market. Originally, this plan was supposed to happen gradually over two years. And they just decided, you know what? Screw it. We need this now. We need the money now. Uh, we're going to piss off some people. And I know that the uh, Habanos fielded calls, you know, uh, the, those people there were not happy, you know, because everybody was screaming at them like, what, you know? So, you know, everybody voiced their opinion and now let's see what happens after the dust settles. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, no. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. LH Premium Cigars deliver the bold, tangy taste found in a Cuban Puro. Handcrafted in a Costa Rican factory from the finest aged tobaccos, once the exclusive domain for the La Vida Habana cigar lounges in the Middle East and enjoyed by princes and sheiks are now available to the everyday cigar aficionado. LH Premium Cigars are blended by Nicholas Siris, who trained under some of Cuba's premier tobacco experts. LH Premium Cigars has a cigar for every taste profile. From the mild-bodied LH Claro 
to the medium-bodied LH Colorado, and for the more full-bodied cigar enthusiast, the LH Maduro. For more information about LH Premium Cigars, visit them at lhcigars.com. All right, so let's talk about, uh, and I know we've gone super long talking about the news, but there's been a ton of stuff in the news uh, about Cuba and Cuban cigars, and so we wanted to make sure that we we brought you guys that because we've got Nick, and he's the expert, and he knows this stuff inside and out, and he's got uh, he's got the inside track when it comes to things in Cuba. But we also want to talk about innovators of of cigars, of Cuban cigars specifically, like those people who have changed the game. And I mean, you know, when we talk about cigars, Nick, it, the cigar is a cigar is a cigar. There's not a whole lot of innovation that can come from a cigar. It's dead leaves rolled up, right? But there are those who have changed the game. So in your opinion, who are some of the big innovators of Cuban cigars? Well, first of all, you know, technology and innovation constantly um, helps all walks and all types of uh, industries and products. And, and I don't care what it is. Now you're talking about a product that dates back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years that for the most part is still being manufactured exactly the same way. So when we talk about the innovators there, there is innovation. There is science that exists of, you know, to, to find out about the soil and the makeup and being able to add the nutrients that are missing in particular soils. And, and there's a lot of technology there. But if you go to the strictly the Cuban side of things, yeah, let's talk about the innovators there. We got to start with the number one guy who, in, who, who discovered uh, the cigars, and I'll give him the innovation of bringing this to the new worlds or to the old world, is Christopher Columbus, right? He discovered the Taino Indians and uh, that's cigars. After that, you know, there was a process of innovation that happened from smoking it through a pipe that went straight to your nostrils to just taking smoking uh, twisted tobacco leaves together and just puffing on the end of it to the process of rolling. But the key characters of things that happened along the way, there was a guy that's pretty um, innovative and um, it's kind of a staple thing to cigars today, but the cigar band. You know, right now, the cigar band is synonymous with a cigar. It's unusual to have a cigar without a cigar band. And there was a guy by the name of Gustav Bach, and he came up with the idea of the cigar band, or at least he's credited for. He was a European of uh, Dutch descent, and um, he came out with this invention back in 1830. And that was, uh, you know, relatively hundreds of years after this happened. And there's all kinds of rumors and theories about why this started to take place and why there is even a band on a cigar. Uh, one of the stories is that there was a, uh, a Russian czarist, uh, Catherine the Great, who loved cigars, and uh, she had theirs wrapped in silk so it could not stain her fingers. So then other people started seeing this, and they started to wrap their cigars in these fabric bands to emulate the queen. Now, there's other stories that uh, cigars exported to England um, people would wear white gloves. So, I mean, they put the bands on. So with the white gloves that the English were wearing, they didn't want to stain those. So anyway, Mr. Gustav came up with the idea and he ordered paper rings um, that he had his signature put on and uh, had him export it to Europe. And um, see, that's interesting. I would have thought that it was a marketing thing. Like these will they'll sell well, better it is now. It, it is now. Right. But, but I guess necessity but, is the mother of invention. Well, I think that basically Gustav 
um, figured out like, you know what? I could put my name uh, on these things and that's the ultimate, um, you know, marketing. So he literally had these paper rings and he had his signature on them and every cigar that, that was intended for the European market that he sold had these rings. And then it was quickly followed by everybody else doing that. And then of course people started registering their marks with the governments. And, and today the band is iconic and it's part of the cigar. And there's phrases like don't smoke the band, smoke the cigar. (laughs) <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to that, believe me, but you yeah, know, it's, 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 it's uh marketing. I mean, not literally smoking the band, but smoking the band because I've, it says I've, I've seen people smoke the band literally. Yeah. That, that happens too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he was a big innovator. I mean, it doesn't sound such an innovation to have a, you know, a paper band that eventually became a, you know, a marketing thing, but yeah, that was pretty, a, kind of a big thing. Um, other than that, you had all these factory owners and there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of factory owners uh, with cigars. The most famous of these factory owners was, um, I would say, Don Jaime Partigas. So uh, Mr. Partigas, um, he had a couple of innovations that he added to his factories. The main thing, and it's something that I'm, it's timely for me because I just went to Cuba this last time to uh, travel and and learn about the uh, history of lectors, which are the readers. Well, uh, Jaime Partagas was the first one to um, experiment not only with uh, new aging techniques and all kinds of innovations that he did, but he um, was the first to introduce lectors into cigar factories. And lectors basically were there to entertain the Tosadoros, you know, read books. And now it's, you know, encompassing uh, current events and everything else. But it's something to occupy before radio came around. And even today, where a lot of these torcedoras maybe will have iPods in their ears, the electors are still there and they become like the mother hen of the of the factory. And again, it's not when you think of innovation, you're thinking high tech. These are low tech things that have helped with the progression and the, the, the history of cigars. But Jaime has noted to have tried a lot of new aging techniques and people are still doing that to this day. Um, what's another innovation in Cuban cigars, though? Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Herman Dietrich. Uh, he's known people that know cigars. He is the inventor of H. Upman cigars. That's his brand. But what he's really known for, and again, still used today, is he kind of invented cedar boxes. You know, they hmm. first, you know, uh, before there were Cuban, uh, there were boxes for cigars. How did people carry around their boxes? How did people keep them? Well, there's an iconic photograph from um, the 1800s where a guy is out walking on the Malecon. He was a street uh, merchant and he was selling cigars and he had them in these husks of palm trees wrapped on each side with string and he would put them inside. So they were kept in these um, palmas and uh, that's how they used to sell cigars in bunches. Um, in these palm leaves. And then finally, you know, uh, Dietrich says, Hey, we'll put them in a box. We'll throw some cedar in there and boom. Um, he also did some cool things where he started utilizing the plantation workforce um, to break down the divisions that were in case and you know, kind of like the first days of labor laws and things like that, because he was, he was a German man. And Germans, uh, they know business. They do know. So, uh, yeah. They're, they're very efficient, aren't they? They, they are, they are, and they're very intelligent and uh, they're big on science. And you know what? Germans love cigars as well, especially Cuban cigars. So after that, 
there's a lot of other names that come to mind. Um, a guy named uh, Jose Roca, or Rocha. He is the uh, brand inventor, founder of Bolivar. Uh, you know, that brand hit the market in about 1901. Um, and then after that, it was when a lot of these other brands started registering, you know, about the 1920s. Um, so those guys are the innovators of Cuban cigars. Um, some of the names that are associated with Cuban cigars that uh, we still use today. Everybody knows Winston uh, Churchill. Obviously, um, his name is, you know, he has a Vitola named after him. And there's right. not too many of that out there, you know. So um, that's pretty cool, even though I wouldn't say he was particularly an innovator in Cuban cigars. He was just a, you know, a fond um, lover of the leaf that uh, his name will go down in history forever as being known with Cuban cigars and cigars in general. As far as other innovators, now we're getting more into the, the modern day. A lot of people might hate me for saying this, but believe it or not, Fidel Castro is an innovator in, in when it comes to Cuban cigars. He really is. Uh -oh, here we go. Um, and, and look, no matter what you think of the man, he did some things that changes that changed things up in the game, you know? Um, well, the first thing he did, which was bad for most people's uh, take is, you know, the nationalization or, you know, taking over all these Cuban um, factories and making most of these uh, original owners for, you know, leave the country. And um, that was bad. Um, but what he did do is he did create the brand that's become synonymous with uh, high-end cigars and Cuban cigars. Everybody, anybody that knows anybody, if you ask them, it's kind of like the Band-Aid of adhesive strips or the 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 Kleenex of uh, tissues. Cohiba. I mean, I don't care where you go. People see you have a cigar and they'll in Cuba, they go, oh, you're smoking a Cohiba. Well, no, I'm not. But, you know, Cohiba just kind of, and that's a brand that's only been around for, you know, less than 60 years. You know, 1966 is when he, uh, the, the word has been around since the beginning. Cohiba means cigar. Uh, the Tainos, uh, that's where he got the word from. But And because he saw one of his uh, his bodyguard, dry, you know, smoking a cigar and he wanted to meet the creator that he got it from. And his innovation was he started his own factory and he wanted to use women, which was not really a common thing back then. And so he made a factory from a uh, reappropriated mansion known as today as the Legito factory um, in Sibone, Havana. It's a beautiful big building and they made it a factory for Cohiba and hundred percent initially of all the rollers, the torcedores that were there were women. Fidel felt that he had a big workforce of women that really weren't working. So he wanted to put them to work. And he also felt rightfully so he was correct that women can do certain things when it comes to cigars better than men. One thing I will say is I don't know how they do it. I don't have this ability. I don't, uh, color grading, right? 99% of most <laughs> color graders are women. And I just don't know how they do it. You well, watch look, them and it's like magic. You talk to any, any husband who has accompanied his wife to the paint store as she looks over every shade of off white that there is, there's eggshell and there's cream and there's this and there's that. I can't tell the difference. Like I, whichever one you want, sweetie. Like, I don't. I, I. I don't know. It all looks the same. I can't tell the difference. Women apparently can. Yeah, 
So, I mean, you know, there's like, you know, 38 grades of color of, of, of a leaf and to watch them do it with such speed. And I'm like, I, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. It's, it's it, to me, it's fascinating. And I mean, I guess you could train yourself to a certain point, but I just don't think you can get to that level, even with all the training in the world. You either no, have it's to gotta have be a, it it's gotta be something that's natural to, to women. Cause I, I, it doesn't matter how long I stare at it. Like eggshell and off white look the, look the same. There's, yeah. th- there's no discernible difference between the two. Yeah. And so after, you know, so he was an innovator, you have to give it to him, you know, with adding a lot of women. And now it's become an accepted thing that women torcedoras are just as good as male and maybe even better. Um, and of course the brand Cohiba. But if there was one person that I can credit it to being probably the biggest innovator of cigars, well, with the exception of say, whole Chris Columbus for discovering it. Somebody <laughs> right. would have eventually um, would be a gentleman by the name of Zeno Davidoff. Anybody that knows Highline cigars or, you know, non-Cuban Highline cigars. And again, they were Cuban for many years is, you know, Davidoff. He was a, um, a, uh, he started in the business when he was like 19 years old and uh, he lived in Switzerland and uh, he went there and his dad, Henry, had a little tobacco shop and he convinced him to sell more cigars. But then what he did is he really wanted to learn a lot than just selling. You know, I think his dad was selling, you know, he wouldn't care if he's selling cigars or widgets. But Zeno, he went to South America. And he started to really soak in his knowledge and he went to Cuba and he went to all these other countries and he really became not only a connoisseur of Cuban cigars and became synonymous with the name uh, of cigars in, in Europe. But what he started, and again, I don't think he's officially credited with this. I've yet to find it, but he really started the modern day humidor. I mean, the humidor really didn't kind of exist. The humidor was Cuba. So the temperature in Cuba and the humidity in Cuba is a natural place for cigars to be. But it wasn't until people like, you know, Zeno started putting them in boxes and figuring out ways to humidify these boxes. Um, his, his vaults and his stores, people used to keep into this day, still do, and many other shops would keep their cigars at these places because they didn't have humidors at home. Once people started figuring out, you know, Hey, you know, these cigars need to be at a certain level of humidity and and the correct temperature. So he kind of started that whole trend of humidors. And, and then he also was educating the, the uh, modern world with cutters and, and how to properly cut a cigar there, you know, before that people were just, you know, biting and spitting. You know, which is not a bad way to do it, but you know, uh, when you don't have a cutter, if you know how to do it right. <laughs> right. But it really was, you know, like he also created three vitolas with Cuba, and his cigars were made in Cuba for a number of years until he realized that he just said, you know, these aren't really good, and he and somehow he had a good relationship with Fidel Castro, and he was one of the only people allowed to keep his brand name and his factories that he had there. So somehow, because of his relationship. Um, you know, he was able to do it. And the one thing he, he realized he made, it was, he's kind of credited for being the first guy to make the connection between wine and cigars. And, you know, we talk about wine and, and, uh, wine connoisseurs, and we talk about cigars. Well, let me tell you something. Those two things have so much in common. 
and uh, his, and he was credited with that. And, and he was really the guy that started the whole thing. And Zeno Davidoff for me is probably, you know, one of the, if not the biggest innovator, you know, he was born in 1906, died in 1994. And, um, he wrote a book that I have one of the first editions of that. And, and there they re- reprinted it a number of times. I think it's currently still out of print, but um, you know, this man brought it to the modern world as modern as you can, you know, like, um, well, let me ask you this, to, Nick, in your opinion, yeah. as, as an expert, a Cuban expert, what is Zeno Davidoff? Like what is his number one thing that he gave uh, cigar smokers? What is his number one innovation? Is it the cutters? Is it the uh, humidor? Is it like, what is it that, that he gave to us that in your opinion was the game changer for Cuban cigars? Uh, humidification. He really, you know, he, he invented the desktop humidor. That was so, his thing. So people before, see, for like, it's weird for me to think of smoking a cigar that hasn't had proper humidification because it's just going to, not smoke right. You're telling me that before this, people in in, in uh, the Midwest, for example, where it gets super cold and everything just kind of dries out, uh, we're just smoking them willy nilly. Yeah, pretty much. That is insane to me because I know, like for a fact, an hour and a half away from me, uh, Davenport, Iowa, had several factories uh, in the at, at the turn of the century like several cigar factories. It's just weird for me to think that they didn't have any form of humidification until Zeno Davidoff came around. Yeah. I mean, he, he's the man that's credited with it. He's the one who did it. Um, he started using the analogies and the, and the similarities between fine wines. He started naming cigars after like, you know, like wines were named after certain things. He started naming them. He did a lot of marketing and he, um, you know, really, really brought, cigars to the modern day in so many ways. And there's a, if you can get your, your hands on some, one of his books, uh, they're really nice. He did write the original cigar book. I don't think anybody had written a cigar book prior to him. Wow. Uh, it's not a very long one or a big one, but you know, it's a good one. And uh, there were actually, you know what I do, I did read some books from in the 1800s from other people about cigars, but his is the most well-known. Let's put it that one. Um, do the Cuban people, do they uh, recognize like, uh, you know, Cuban aficionados and whatnot down in Cuba? Do they recognize uh, all of the um, innovations that Zeno Davidoff ha- has given to the to yeah. the culture, to the lifestyle? Or Yeah, I don't think they really speak about them today, but they realize, you know, I mean, you know, the collaboration with Cuba Tobacco ended, you know, with a little scandal. Right. Um, but 1989 was when they officially, you know, stopped. And that's not too long ago. No. Um, there were people didn't realize that, you know, Davidoff was making Cuban cigars forever. Uh, you know, he did also make non-Cubans in, in Dominican Republic with, uh, you know, Mr. Kellner. Hen- Hendrik Kellner was uh, Henke. He, uh, you know, he met him, you know, and he's still he's still around, still in the game. And yeah. um, they make some great cigars. Uh, they're 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 on the high side of prices. Um, but, uh, you know, they were purchased, it was, a, it was an independent company, but it was purchased by Ottinger, uh, another German company. And, uh, some of the heirs, I know 
the one gentleman that I, I'm familiar with and friendly with, his mom was one of the original heirs of uh, Zeno Davidoff, and he still works for the company. So it's a good company, make great cigars. Uh, you should try them. But Zeno definitely <laughs> is somebody. Him. You should. Why not? You know? Why do you, why are you laughing? I'm just laughing because you're just like, I know, you should go try this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like really, it's, why not? It's weird for me to think that nobody knew that Davidoff, you know, like a lot of people didn't know that Davidoff made Cuban cigars, but they stopped in 1989. So again, it's, and I grew up during this time, you know, where there was no internet and everything is just at the tip of your fingers. And I keep forgetting that there was a time, even in my lifetime where all of this information, like you had to know somebody who knew, or you had to pick up a book and read about it. And you know, now you can just Google something and all this stuff comes up. I mean, he, he was really like, you know, he went out there when uh, the embargo happened. A lot of people think he went over to Dominican first, but actually he was producing a Zeno brand in Honduras mm-hmm. and um, eventually landed in Dominican and set up shop and bought, you know, uh, a factory there. And that's where their kind of their factories are headquartered, but um, you know, German company and uh, you got to pay homage to Zeno Davidoff. So Absolutely. I would say, since then, you know, there's been a lot of amazing innovators and blenders and people that are knowledge, a lot of brands and factories. My favorite personally, and one of my biggest regrets in life, well, there's two people that I spent some time with. One, of course, is Alejandro Robina, who is very super famous outside of the U.S. when it comes to cigars, Cuban cigars specifically, because he's the only one in the history of well, I shouldn't say that because Partagas technically has a name of some of somebody, but the the Robina brand was named after Alejandro Robina, and uh, because he was just such a great ambassador of the leaf, and uh, really just knew his stuff. You know, I'm sure he wasn't um, educated, but I mean, when you spend every waking you know day of your life you know, breathing, smoking, and doing tobacco and living to 91 years of age. That's what he did. Yeah. Um, now a guy, I, I got to spend some time with Alejandro. And when I first met him, I didn't speak a word of, of Spanish. And through the years I was able to communicate. Well, in the early days I communicated with translators. And then after that, I picked it up. You know, I, I speak a passable Cuban now. Some people may argue that, but you know, I do, I do kind of, <laughs> there might be people that. out there like, I can't understand what yeah. he's saying. No, but no, you know, it's funny. Like the Cubans seem to understand me and that's all I care about. Right. But there's another guy that I specifically, uh, I'm very melancholy in this fact that I, my plan and dream was to spend some time with a gentleman by the name of Arsenio Ramos. Arsenio Ramos just died a couple of years ago in 2018. And, um, when I met him, man, we just clicked and, um, I could tell that he was excited because I was excited. And that's the same feeling I get when I meet a, a new smoker or somebody that comes to Cuba for the first time and just their eyes are like wide. For me, it was like kid in a candy store. I just wanted to sit like a kid and just listen to everything this man told me about cigars because that man knew more about you know tobacco than the average person will ever learn in 10 lifetimes. I mean, he just, you know... Uh, you know, he worked for mm. um, Eduardo Fernandez, who currently is the owner of 
Well, now they call it Aganorsa. Before that, it was Casa Fernandez. Casa Fernandez, yeah. But for many, many years, he spent decades working in Cuba's tobacco industry. Um, he was the head of the processing for Cuba tobacco for the tobacco, the other tobaccos that were grown in Pinar del Rio. So what I loved about him is if you wanted to make a cigar blend that reminded you of a Cuban cigar, he was the guy. The, when the original one, people started throwing around this Cubanesque word and Cubanesque taste, in my opinion, Arsenio Ram, uh, Ramos was it. And he was up until the day he died, you know, working in the factory and the man just knew knowledge. I mean, half a century, man, he worked with, uh, you know, with Habanos and then he went to work for um, the Casa Fernandez team in Nicaragua. But his idea was kind of to recreate the best Cuban blends that he remembered from his youth into the new world taste. And he knew tobacco. When I first met him, I said, look, I, I wish I had more time to spend with you here. I said, well, you know, can you give me some somewhere to start? Because I'm coming back. And he's like, all right, go out and buy this book first. And I'm like, oh, shit, is that only in Spanish? Because I was looking it up on Amazon. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, you'll find it in English. And I'm like, okay. And it was basically about, you know, black tobacco. And it was like not only the history. I mean, this guy, I, I don't know what his educational background is, but this man was a scientist. Um just knew everything there was to know about tobacco. I mean, I'm not saying there's people today that don't, but he of the old school really did. And, you know, I just um, saddened that uh, he yeah. passed, you know, he, uh, he was, you know, I don't know how old it would have, you know, if he was born in 34 oh, and he died in 2018, um, I guess he died in 83. Um, so, you know, the, my mentor in Cuba, who's another guy, he's about 83 himself. And I'm just, in the last couple of years, I haven't been able to go sit with them. And, and I sit with him and he was a master ligador with Habanos for many years. Um, and everything I do, I pass by him, you know, every blend I make and just sitting with them and the amount of knowledge these people can impart. Amazing. Amazing. So, you know, if you love cigars and you want to geek out about knowledge, there's a lot of good books out there you can read, but you can learn from just some of the the, the real people that seem to know about stuff. Now, you'll have to kind of weed it out because one thing I will say, um, I, I met for the first time Luciano um, from uh, Ace Prime. And after our first you know couple of meetings, he kind of was feeling me out. I was kind of feeling him out because I, I knew of his cigars, <laughs> but never had met the guy. Right. After a few minutes of just you know really bonding, he's like, you know what I hate about this industry? And I said, what? He goes, all the bullshitters. And I said, man, I could not agree with you more. I've, I've said that exact thing so many times. And so we were just like on the same level. And, and I think uh, Luciano, um, he knows his shit and uh, he loves what he does. He's got a passion uh, as much as anybody. I mean, listen, the reality is most people in this industry are in it, whether it's on the retail level, shop level, worker, level, whatever you want to call it, you got to like tobacco and you got to like cigars to be in this business. But when you love what you do, man, you know, you're not working a day work. in your life. You're right. You know, it's, it doesn't seem like work. It can be a grind, but the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. You know, when I work all day with a cigar in my hand, eh, can it be so bad? You know, and then at night, what do I do to relax? I smoke a smoke cigar. A cigar. So That's right. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I walk the walk and I'm, I'm a real cigar smoker. There's people in this industry and not to say it in a disparaging way, because I won't say their names, of course, but there are very big brand owners 
that don't even smoke cigars. No. And that is the honest truth, and people know who I'm talking about. And there's a lot of them yep. out there. It's not just one. But uh, the point it, is, hey, that's okay. You know, but it's a business for you. For me, it's way beyond a business. Yeah. It, it, again, I can't think of a... I can't think of another industry or another job where you relax after your job by doing the same things that you did at your job, right? Yeah. Well, Normally you want to get away, away from that and you want to have the, you know, the, some kind of stress relief, but you, when you're working with tobacco and, and cigars, I mean, that is literally what they're for. It is a stress reliever. And so, yeah, it's uh it's interesting. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about the industry. We got to talk about the industry a lot while we were in in Ashland uh, this past weekend. It was a great time meeting you, Nick, uh, and sitting down and uh, likewise, yeah. You know, uh, actually getting to 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 sit face to face and look you in the eye and and just tell how genuine you are. And I, I can't thank you enough for you know not everything, uh, not only for everything you did this last weekend and and setting that up and and you know introducing me to Dwight, but also just for coming on this podcast. And and sharing your knowledge once a month with uh, once a month with us as words become difficult for me uh, because you do have a lot of knowledge and you're very passionate about this and, and that comes through and I think it comes through with our listeners it definitely comes through with me uh, and so I am very appreciative of that because you have a lot of knowledge not only about the industry but specifically about Cuba and Cuban cigars. Uh, which is not always something that people appreciate being talked about in this industry. And I think at some point we need to uh, address that because, you know, we were talking earlier about all of the news in Cuba and, you know, how do the, you know, with, with the Biden administration kind of making these changes, how do, you know, the expats feel about that? How do the, the families who were exiled from Cuba, how do they feel about that? Because they, they're obviously not happy, but at the end of the day, you know, we the Cuban people are the are who's suffering in all of this. They're the ones who are really getting uh, beaten and downtrodden and oppressed. And you know, if we can if we can help that, I, I think we have an obligation to do so. I agree. I agree. I think uh, you know, baby steps. Yes. But uh, we're hopefully we'll see it in our lifetime. I mean, I can't believe it's. I mean, not not our own government. Not the Cuban people, not the Cuban Americans that left Cuba would ever have thought that this embargo would go for over a half a century. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's arguably, you know, I, in my opinion, you know, not the greatest thing. And I think it uh, it actually helped the Cuban government stay in power. But uh, there'll be people that would argue that point. I just think it's time for a change. It clearly has not worked. I don't care how or what side of the fence you talk about it. The point is, it didn't accomplish what it was supposed to do, which was right. topple their regime. Yep. So if it didn't work, why do you think that continuing to do it is going to, you know, change anything? There's something else needs to be done and can be done and should be done. But um, and look. You know if you want to hear us talk about this more in depth next uh, episode uh, of our Cuban sub series with Nick Sirius, uh, we're going to be diving into the modern Cuban cigars and the impact of communism and the U.S. embargo. So uh, as much as we try to stay away from politics, when you are talking about uh, Cuban cigars, you have to talk politics. And this is going to be the episode, uh, the definitive episode. Ouch. 
yeah. <laughs> where we are going to deep dive into this. And you can tell already that that Nick has strong feelings on this. Uh, and I think I have some strong feelings and opinions on this. And we're going to share them with you, whether you want us to or not. That's what we're going to do in the next episode, uh, Modern Cuban Cigars and the Impact of Communism and the U.S. Embargo. Nick Cirrus, LH Cigars, sir, thank you so much again for coming on this month and uh, talking Cuban cigars with us. I appreciate it. As always, I love doing what I do, and I'd be happy every time you want me, I'm here. Absolutely. Uh, join us next time. We will we'll be talking about uh, modern Cuban cigars and the impact of communism and the U.S. embargo. Until then, thank you so much for listening, and stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Visit simplystogies.com for the latest articles and reviews. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest in video content. And please rate and review Simply Stogies on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. If you have a question or suggestion for James or would like to be on the show, please send an email to info at simplystogies.com. 